Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. The Athletic. Hello, I'm Mark Chapman, and I'm here to tell you what The Athletic has planned across its podcast network during the Euros. My pod with David Ornstein will become The Athletic's England show throughout the tournament to bring you all the latest news and insight from inside the England camp every single day. Then we'll also have nightly editions of the Totally Football Show, taking a look at all the big talking points from the competition and looking ahead to the next day's fixtures. Now, if you're feeling nostalgic for tournaments past, we've produced an eight-part documentary series that tells some fascinating stories from both on and off the pitch from the last eight Euros. Elsewhere... Michael Cox's Zonal Marking Pod will offer an in-depth tactical breakdown of all the biggest games, while Adam Hurry's Football Cliché Show will take a look at the tournament's alternative storylines. So, as this never-ending domestic season finally draws to a close, we'll have plenty of Euro 2020 coverage for you to enjoy as the tournament gets underway in just a couple of weeks' time. totally football show and that was that as the curtain comes down on the season with a firm flump we round up the final day drama the crying the goodbyeing the Jorginho whying and salute Sergio Roy Nuno and the rest there's a look ahead to the prospects Wednesday in Gdansk will Villarreal get spanked by the Manx and a courageous attempt to remember things that happened this season and which were the best ones all that and more in this totally football show in association with Paddy Power Hello you, it's Monday the 24th of May probably for you, but Sunday evening for us at Totally as we bring together for you Daniel Story once again. Hello Daniel. Hi James. Also with us on this final day of the season, Michael Cox. Hi Michael. Hi James. And fresh back from the beach, Sasha Gurinov. Hi Sasha. Hi James. I say from the beach because you are fresh as we all are from the 10 game simultaneous cast that that marked the uh, the final afternoon of this premier league season what which bits did you watch what were you across sasha well i had i had to be across uh, liverpool palace and trying to keep, keep an eye on leicester as well and right. somewhat unexpectedly for me then chelsea failed as well so I, i'm just right. trying to process everything it's still spoiler alert yeah uh, daniel i started watching villa chelsea and when that went to 2-0 and chelsea didn't score within about 5 minutes i Flicked onto Leicester Spurs for the rest. Crikey! And Michael, you were across all of them at the same time. I imagine rather like <laughs> Thomas Newton in the Man Who Fell to Earth. Uh, I, I watched first half of Liverpool, and I was kind of trying to ch- uh, chase the drama in the second half. But what they right. need, James, is a proper goal show, don't they? <laughs> or, or perhaps the next day, a kind of one-minute roundup, because you know, nine months of build-up or whatever it was, and then it was over so very quickly. So let's relive the drama, the twists and the turns 
of the final afternoon. Five teams, or possibly six, beginning the day battling for their European places and just 90 minutes later ending up in almost exactly the same positions that they started in. Chelsea, Liverpool and Leicester were hunting two Champions League spots. Leicester on the outside looking in were the first to score. Marty takes, sends Larissa the wrong way and sends the 8,000 inside the King Power into Ratchers. Vardy's penalty had the Foxes top four and Liverpool fifth. But 19 minutes later, Liverpool strike against Palace. And now it's Chelsea who are fifth. And not long after, they're behind at Villa as well. It's rep target to take it. That fooled everyone. Traore! Scores against his former club! Ooh, but hang on. Kane at the King Power, grabbing his 23rd of the season, putting him ahead in the Golden Boot race and Leicester back into fifth place. Second half begins with more problems for Chelsea. First, Mendy is injured, so Kepper is coming on. Then at Leicester, Vardy's won another penalty. Vardy against Lloris, take two. Same result. He's left statuesque, the French international. And then Villa win one themselves. Tucked away by El Ghazi as Chelsea's hopes head down the Kazi. A Sky Sports show, a league table where all the lines just have the name Johnson, like in The Shining or something, panic spreads. Arsenal now take the lead against Brighton, moving past Spurs into seventh place. Maybe they can just start looking at the map of Europe. But of course, the twists are yet to come. At Villa, Chelsea pull one back, while at the King Power... Schmeichel comes, he hasn't got it, it's in! Spurs are level! Michael there while innocently punching Sanchez in the head, knocking Son's corner into his own net. It's 2-2, Leicester are getting left out, and after that the goals fly in. Manny grabs another at Anfield, Bale comes on and grabs a brace, and Spurs end up 4-2 winners. They retake seventh from Arsenal, and Chelsea, despite their defeat, join Liverpool and the Manchester sides in the Champions League. Well, final day is known for its madness. What did you think, Michael? Were you entertained? Yeah, I mean, there was loads of drama. I think for us trying to be across lots of it and, and trying to have interesting things to say, there was almost too much drama, um, especially when there was a couple of games that weren't relevant to the Champions League places and interesting stuff happened. You know, Aguero mm. coming on to uh, to get two goals was nice. But yeah, it was obviously it's been a, a dreadful season, but I thought it was a pretty entertaining final day. Yeah, I think in the end, uh, I was—I actually had to go for a walk after the first 15 minutes because Liverpool kept conceding chances. Uh, I returned to find Rhys Williams uh, basically not bearing a header from six yards. So I thought, oh, here we go. But I think after that, Liverpool actually managed the game quite well. And I was very surprised um, by what happened in Leicester because uh, Spurs created nothing uh, for half an hour until Schmeichel punched the ball into his own net. And I, I, had, I just feel really, really sorry for Leicester because I think they just lost that game out of nothing in the last 15 minutes. Mm-hmm. To lose two top four races in a row, I'm sure Lady Bracknell would have something to say about that, Daniel. Indeed. Very nice literary reference. Mm. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I thought it was a, it's kind of a shame for... Obviously, it's a shame for Leicester, but it's also kind of a shame that we ended up with the same top four as last season, which... Given all the unpredictability of this season, it does seem a a little bit of a shame that it ends up being, you know, exactly the same. Leicester out on the final day again. Um, But yeah, they they did capitulate after that Schmeichel own goal. It felt as if, it felt as if as soon as that happened, they'd lost all faith in getting back into the game. Iheanacho kind of lost his form and they they lost their heads a little bit defensively. Um, And Spurs did, to be fair, after Bell came on, completely change the game. I mean, I, I... 
I feel slightly sorry for Leicester because I would have liked to have seen them in the Champions League places, but they've been really bad over the last few weeks. I mean, they didn't just lose it here. I mean, they lost 4-2 at home to Newcastle. They couldn't beat a 10-man Southampton. They were lucky Manchester United played their reserves against them. And I must say, I thought even in the cup final, I thought they really didn't perform anything like as good as, as, good as, you know, as, good as they can. And I thought they were really lucky to win that game. Obviously, a great moment for them. But, they, you know, people have a few weeks ago started speculating about whether Leicester would kind of do it again. And I don't usually like to use the word bottle it and those kind of things. And I think it was probably more about physical tiredness than bottling it. But they have brought this on themselves by playing well below the level that they've performed at for the previous few months. So I'm kind of out of sympathy with them. They lost five of their last eight league games. But I think a lot of the sympathy arises from the fact that they spent more days inside the top four this season than any other club and yet still miss out. Sasha? Plus, I thought it's a very untimely loss of Evans. I think they could have done with Evans in, the, in this in this run-in. Uh, I think today as well, they were unlucky. At Fafana got injured and you got uh, Mendy coming on trying to patch up that back line. And I think in the end, you could see that that lack of composure at the back because there was no leader. I mean, there was Suyuncu, I think, clearing against Tielemans very late on. And I think Schmeichel lost his head as well after his error. So I think, yeah, maybe psychologically, th- th- again, they didn't quite manage it. But I think th- there was important defenders, I think, that were lost, particularly Evans, I think. I only saw the second half of this game, really having turned over from Liverpool, but I thought it was interesting that at 2-1, Rodgers took off Madison and brought on Pereira. Now, I know they're short on numbers, and Madison hasn't been fully fit, so it's probably a fitness thing, but I thought they really retreated into their shell after that and, and didn't really offer anything going forward. So when it got to the period where they needed a goal, or two goals in the end, actually three goals in the end, they just didn't really offer anything going forward. So it was quite a meek way for them to to fall out of the Champions League places considering they've been so exciting and so pleasing to watch for much of the season. Yeah, they look very glum at the final whistle, that FA Cup victory notwithstanding. If you feel a sympathy for Leicester, how how are your thoughts towards uh, Spurs who tumble into the uh, the Europa Conference League? Whether that will be enough to get Harry Kane to stay, we don't know yet. Uh, Bale too, presumably, is, is, is marching on at this point. Yeah, there's clearly a, a huge summer rebuild there and there, there's a train of thought and I, I think it has some merit that if the Harry Kane saga ends reasonably quickly and they get the money they want, then at least there will be the money for that rebuild because there's a loan that they are due to pay back pretty soon and without that money, I think it's going to be hard to spend big money on that team and probably hard to spend big money on a manager as well. It's in, Brendan Rodgers has been touted as their number one choice. He said after the game at Leicester that you know I'm, I'm 200% committed to this club now. Maybe the official approach hasn't got and maybe he'll change his mind, but he doesn't. And Celtic fans may say they've heard that before, but he didn't sound like a manager that's going to jump there. And it's not really obvious who's their, who their next manager is. If they've got to rebuild a squad and get a manager and prepare for Thursday, Sunday football in it, in a competition they, they probably don't want to be in. I, I, th- I think that Conference League has been probably unfairly derided by um, English. But I, BT, after the game, like their pundits were really kind of laying into the tournament. I mean, they're covering it next season. So um, <laughs> that that seems odd, but I, I understand that Spurs may, may think it's slightly beneath them. But um, there's a heck of a lot of work to do there because all of those things that Pochettino knitted together and, and some of them kind of frayed away at the end of his spell but all of the things he knitted together have now completely broken you know the relationship between the fans and the club the relationship between Kane and the fans and seemingly Kane and the club as well have all broken and that's a lot of work to do in a major tournament summer 
It d- does feel like whatever money they get for Kane can't possibly be enough. They not only have to replace him, but as you say, they have to address innumerable other issues. Kane himself has become only the second player in Premier League history to top the charts for both goals and assists after Andy Cole for Newcastle in 93-94. Winning his third golden boot, only Alan Shearer and Thierry Henry have three of the gilded uh, footwear trophy things. Uh, <laughs> Great second mention. <laughs> nice. <laughs> so, uh, well, yeah, there you go. So a summer of uncertainty, I imagine, for Tottenham and, and for Harry Kane as well. Do you, would you like to take a wild and unsubstantiated punt as to where he might end up? If I had to put money on it, I would put money on him still being at Tottenham. There you go. All right, then. What about Chelsea? They did it, but it wasn't exactly a resounding triumph. They had a next week's clash with Manchester City. A 2-1 defeat at Villa. Also, worrying signs of uh, nerves fraying, heads going, that kind of thing. How, how concerned should Tuchel be, given that they seem such a smoothly drilled machine? after his arrival, but not so much anymore. Again, they they lost a game that I don't think they should have lost. Same thing with the cup final, same thing with, I went to Chelsea Arsenal recently, they should have never lost that. Um, Here, I thought they they battered uh, Villa at times and created so many chances. And uh, yet again, they come over with defeat. I think think Tuchel must be looking at being a little bit baffled. I mean, it's understandable. you know, Aspilicueta got a bit unlucky in the end, got a bit annoyed with, with life. But there is stuff like, you know, Mendy colliding with a post. Um, I think at that stage, you, you probably thought Tuchel must have been thinking, well, this is just ridiculous. Everything is conspiring against us. I mean, they managed to get over the line. But in terms of, you know, in terms of the goals conceded, yeah, you know, not, not great. But I think going forward, again, they created everything apart from finishing those chances. Apart from finishing those chances. Might mm. that be the simple explanation <laughs> that, that Tuchel's searching for as to why things don't go his way. Villa fans chanting the name of their former player, Tammy Abraham, uh, which is always nice to see, and he tweeted his appreciation. I'm not suggesting that he necessarily is the answer to their goal-scoring woes, but what must he be thinking, for example, when he sees you know, the Premier League classic double act of Timo Werner and the linesman flag regularly getting an outing <laughs> in his place? I mean, I think Werner was good again. His general play is, is excellent. Um, the bigger issue for me with Chelsea is that they, they seem to... Um, almost like Man- the, the kind of Manchester City uh, accusation before their winning run, that when they concede a goal, it does seem to sort of cause this slight loss of head in that, that they then, it's almost as if they, they get frustrated by their own deficiencies in the final third and therefore, you know, they commit silly fouls and pick up bookings and kind of double down on the problems that they're making for themselves. Um, I think if Manchester City score first in the Champions League final, then... Um, it's probably a very obvious thing to say, but I, I don't see any way back for Chelsea. They're going to have to get better at taking those chances. They've been pretty good at it at home under Tuchel, but they've been they've been really poor, at, at, not at creating chances, but at finishing them. And that's not just down to Werner. I mean, I know he's a kind of running joke of expensive Premier League strikers at the moment, but his interchange play is great. Mason Mount missed the best chance today. He should have scored from seven, eight yards out. Um, and yeah, it's just that lack of exactness. You could see Tuchel kind of screaming at them as if they weren't quite knitting things together in the way that he's been asking them to. They're still not con- uh, really conceding chances from open play. I mean, the, the defence is still pretty well organised. I mean, the, the cup final, Tielemans' shot from 35 yards was basically the best Leicester offered. In this game, it, it was a penalty and a goal from Bertrand Traore that 
I wasn't sure whether he wasn't celebrating because it was against his former club or whether it was such a crap goal that no one should ever <laughs> he celebrate. He just hit it, didn't he? It was just like the way it looped up. <laughs> he did it Ozil style. He kicked it into the ground. Yeah. Yeah, he'll, he'll claim yeah. that. But I mean, I, I thought it was a little bit of a, a freak result from what I saw. I mean, yeah. Like I said, they're just not conceding chances in open play. Set pieces, I think that would be going into the game against City, I think that would be the issue because Leicester, the cup final, Leicester did have one decent chance from a set piece and much as this was a bit of a crap finish by Bertrand, he was free having made a good run and, and City actually have, have become quite prolific from set pieces at times this season, a big game. Mm. So I'd be a bit concerned about that. And of course the finishing, I mean, like you say, Werner, I mean, he gets goals disallowed for offside even when he's actually onside himself, doesn't he? So he's, uh, yeah, bizarre campaign for him. Ayubami just asks, on the subject of not scoring goals, is it the tactics or the system or none of the forward players being built for scoring goals? Michael, briefly, or Daniel, or Sash? Well, I'd say the latter. I mean, we've talked all season about Brighton underperforming their XG and that kind of thing. And I can't help thinking it's because, well, yeah, you play a forward three, of three very lively, very creative players, none of whom have ever really got a track record of being cons- uh, consistent goal scorers. And to a certain extent, I think that's what, what Chelsea are going to have if you have Havertz or, or Ziyech as your main strikers, or indeed Werner, who, I mean, not to this level, but he's always been a player who gets chances because he's so quick and makes good runs, but isn't a prolific finisher. So, yeah, I, I do think it's a slight consequence of not having a, a ruthless finisher in the side. And much as I, you know, I've, one of the people who, who um, very much reads a lot into expected goals. But I don't go in for this whole thing that it's complete luck. Uh, I think right. if, you, if you miss chances, you miss chances. And if you keep on missing chances, it's often because you've got uh, players who aren't very good at finishing. If only there was a clinical finisher suddenly available somewhere within the same city at the moment, Sasha. One, one thing I would say uh, about the Abraham chat, one thing that struck me last season was that Abraham was unable to convert half chances into proper chances, and he was doing it consistently until he was actually dropped. And I remember I flagged this, uh, we had a pre-match chat with Shearer, uh, I think one of the Chelsea games, and uh, this was just after the Newcastle beat Chelsea. And I sort of flagged it to them, look, do you think he's good enough at converting these chances? He kind of went, nah, 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 nah. And another thing I would point out as well, I still have a problem with Chelsea's goalkeeping. I was, um, I did like pre-match presentation before Chelsea-Arsenal the other week, and then I would just sat down and I looked up and there was goalkeepers warming up. And I have to say, I think Chelsea's, like just looking at the way Chelsea, the three keepers were warming up, I think that it's, it's not intense enough. It's it's a little bit too sloppy. Um, like technically none of them, I think, are good enough. And compared to them, Bert Leno on the, at the other end of the pitch was just a completely different level. So I think these goalkeepers would actually carry on letting them down. Sasha, you know all about goalkeeper preparations as well, don't you? Because you do that training thing in the park with... Um it's, it's my, my, my goalkeeping coach, uh, former former Chelsea youth player uh, back there back in go. the day. Um, mm. But I was just like I, I was looking at, it and I think I think all Chelsea goalkeepers were basically sloppy, um, and then that gets carried into games, um, and then yeah, I, I think I do still think uh, that someone they need to get in someone better than Mendy. Okay, well Mendy may not be available next Saturday night. I'm guessing, given that he he came off at halftime after that collision with the post. Apparently, he's going to have a, a scan on his ribs. On Monday, N'Golo Kante also in doubt after his hamstring issue against Leicester. Hmm. Well, concerns then for Thomas Tuchel. We should put that into slightly wider context. That they were Chelsea were ninth when he took over. They did have a, a game in hand, I think, as someone seems to have had all, all times this season. But um, they would certainly have taken the end result, even if the, you know, even if it ends in two final defeats and a 
uh, a kind of sloppy fall into the top four rather than grabbing it at the end of the season. They earned that position of slight comfort that they almost squandered because they were pretty ruthless and efficient in the first 10 weeks of Tuchel. All right, very nice bit of perspective there, Daniel. Uh, amongst <laughs> all of this, Sasha was watching Liverpool winning 2-0 against Crystal Palace. Uh, let's get on to that next. Uh, Harry, is there any truth in the rumours that you're off to Spain in the summer? Uh, 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 sorry, me, uh, me no hablo inglés. Uh, what about one of the Manchester clubs? Oh, uh, well, you know, it's... Uh... Well, Harry, what about my source who says you're keen to stay at Spurs? <laughs> uh, can we keep the questions sensible, please? Kane's future at Spurs remains uncertain, but you're guaranteed to get money back as a free bet if one leg of your four-fold acre lets you down. Paddy Power! Max free bet £10, minards 1 to 5 on each leg. Online exclusive, exclude shop bets and enhanced match odds. T's and C's apply. 18 plus, begumbleaware.org. This episode is supported by Season 3 of FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League 2 after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the city's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher division. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenges and rise again into League 1? FX is welcome to Wrexham. Catch all new episodes Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. This is the Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. The Athletic is the only place you can read articles by Daniel Taylor, Amy Lawrence, Phil Hay, James Pierce, Ollie Kay, and the very best football writers around. Sasha, how was the send-off for Uncle Roy? <laughs> it was a send-off for it was a send-off for Junior Vinaldum, and fortunately, it was successful. Yeah. Uh, Vinaldum was captain for the day as well, and uh, mm-hmm. yeah, I think Vinaldum was one of the key players in that Liverpool midfield, and also uh, one of the players that helped uh, carry Liverpool over the line this season. Played in all thirty-eight games. Uh, in a season with a ridiculous amount of injuries and he just kept going and going and going. At certain stages, it felt like he was running an empty as well. But I think the finale um, with fans at the end of the season uh, to say to have goodbye to Van Aldem, I thought was lovely. Um, he's a lovely interviewer post-games. Just, just a, seems to be a really great level-headed guy. Um, and I think the only time he got angry was that time he scored two goals against Barcelona. So maybe he should have got more angry more often. Um, but I thought, yeah, after the jittery first 15, uh, Liverpool then kind of asserted themselves and really saw a game out. A couple of scrappy goals. But I think Liverpool really have to take a lot of heart from this. A, a disastrous season uh, with a ridiculous number of centre-back partnerships. In the end, they end up with Phillips and Williams for the run in the last five games of the season and they win them all. Uh, I think the big difference in these last five games has been they've been getting lucky because they haven't been punished for every single mistake they were making and this would happen at least once or twice every game. Um, which whereas before it felt like everything was flying in. And I think, uh, you know, down the other end, you know, Firmino woke up, Mane woke up today. Um, and look, like they won eight out of the last 10. Uh, they went into the last game of the season needing a win to qualify for the Champions League. They've done this twice on the club before. And they, yeah, I, th- I think in the end they did it very professionally today. Uh, and it also feels like there is a bit of momentum again. Uh, which certainly wasn't there about a couple of months ago. Indeed not. Sadio Mane scoring against Crystal Palace for the eighth Premier League meeting with them in a row. He's only the second player in Premier League history to score in eight successive matches against the same opponent. The previous example being Robin Van Persie against Stoke Palace. As I say, they wave goodbye to Roy Hodgson. Was there any kind of guard of honour? What was there, a plinth? Any kind of music and light show at the end for him? Sash, <laughs> I didn't. Did I, I didn't see one. Um, no. I personally wouldn't put a statue up to him. Uh, no, but, um, but you know, 
Anyway, never mind. Frank Lampard is the favourite, they say, to take over at Selhurst Park. Didn't you turn him down? I thought you oh, turned him down. Well, maybe they're wrong then. Hmm. I, I, I cannot, I can't, other than the fact it's the first Premier League job to come up, that sounds like an absolute hospital pass to Lampard, in my hmm. opinion. I mean, he might think, if I do an all right job there, then my standing is still enough that I will then automatically get a better job next time. But that's, right. that's, that's such a big, big project to take on in your second top flight managerial job. But what kind of job would Lampard, I know he's been linked with the under 21 job, but aside from that, what kind of job is he looking to get? I mean, he didn't do an amazing job at Chelsea. And Palace finished mid-table. I think when you look at the wage bill, it's about ninth or tenth in the league. I can't really imagine what kind of club he'd be looking for if he doesn't want Palace. Although I do, I do agree about the rebuild. But I mean, he's going to be going to the Championship, isn't he? If he's I, that, that seems a level for me. Maybe he should. Maybe he should go to the Championship. Didn't he kind of do okay at Chelsea? But this year was a weird year and it certainly didn't end well for him. But he did go on that terrific 18-game unbeaten spell in the early part. And last season, aren't there quite a lot of positives about... I mean, they, they got top four when they had a transfer ban and I think other issues as well. No, they did okay. I just, I'm honestly not sure what he would be expecting. I think he did all right at Chelsea. I think he did mm. all right at Derby. I just mid-table side with ambitions to finish slightly higher, I think it's pretty much the kind of thing he's going to be looking for. Uh, yeah, I, I just don't really understand. The under-21 job would make sense for him. I don't know if it makes sense for, for England. But yeah, Palace, I think, is about his level. So I don't think he, he wants to be turning that down, personally. OK. Swansea's Steve Cooper, who's in the midst of his own bid to get into the Premier League with Swansea, is another of the names being mentioned. All right, some other things in this final day of the season. Hammers taking sixth place in the unlikeliest West Ham storyline since that Hobbit went hooly. Who would have thought back in September we'd be seeing David Moyes' team in the Europa League? Who, what, where did you predict them, Daniel? Well, I, I think I, I got quite a lot of stick. I think I did the predicted table for the eye and I think I had them kind of 11th or something and I had West Ham mm. fans saying, oh, we're going to go down. We sold Dean Garner, blah, blah, blah. I mean, I didn't see this and I, I think along with Leeds and, and Villa, certainly... I'd put Leeds above Villa in this regard. They're the, the two biggest overachievers for me by quite a distance. Um, but Moyes, is, Moyes saw a framework in which if he could bring in players to fit it, he wanted a team that matched his kind of managerial philosophy. He didn't want Felipe Anderson and Andrei Yarmolenko and uh, Manuel Lanzini. And, and he's even moved, you know, the kind of perfect embodiment of his season is them moving Issa Diop out of centre-back to bring Craig Dawson in and it working out really well like that that's what he wanted and I think it just shows that as with Allardyce Moyes is a manager where I think he has limitations but if he if he's allowed to create something that he feels like he's got ownership of then he's really good at what he does. Benji's uncle Jeff coefficient finale if you're curious has them 26 points better off than they were in the last Premier League season, they are the most improved team in the division. And this is also their biggest points haul since 85-86 in a top division campaign. Crikey. Uh, Pablo Fornals with uh, the quick-fire double in the first half. Danny Ings of Southampton with their opponents on this final day and beaten 3-0. Danny Ings, some suggestions this might be his goodbye to the Saints. Got a year left on his contract, but there'll be a lot of clubs, I imagine, that would uh, love to have him in their squads. Again, what sort of club is he looking for? What sort of, I mean, would Spurs go for him? They probably think that's, uh, he's not he's not big enough name for them. Um, I don't know, <laughs> do you think? 
I don't know, would they would they get excited with getting Ings in to replace Kane? For example? I mean I, it's hard I, to I, see. It feels to me like if Kane does leave, they're probably not gonna get a direct replacement in terms of someone that is dominating the side like this, and it might have to be a bigger rebuild with, with various components of which I can imagine Ings being one of them. I mean, I don't think there's too many sides towards the top of the league that definitely don't need a Danny Ings figure. You know, as I always say, I think the importance of a plan B is really important for big clubs. And I think it's it's quite difficult when you spend 60, 70, 80 million on a centre forward to then not play him most weeks. Whereas I think Danny, Danny Ings, whether he wants to be a bit part player is another question. But if you spend 20, 30 million on him, then maybe you can have him as a... A super sub. I mean, even whether he'd he'd want this kind of move, but West Ham are always trying to mm. buy in big name centre forwards. They don't have a centre forward at the moment. I mean, that that's the kind of club that I can imagine would be in for Danny Ings. All right, that would work out nicely. Mm, maybe mm-hmm. mm. West Ham anyway, finishing sixth. A champions, of course, were Man City, who rounded off their campaign with a whopping five nil win against Everton. Carlo Ancelotti there with the heaviest defeat of his career. Over a 1,000 games he's been in charge. Never been beaten by this big a margin. And Everton, who had looked potentially in the race for top four not too long ago, finished 10th place. Nice to see Sergio Aguero getting his run out. Came on in the second half. Within 10 minutes, he'd put two away. And they were brilliant as well. I mean, the first one in particular. And then it was also really touching to see Pep Guardiola at, at the end when he was talking on, on telly about Aguero, and he, he actually couldn't speak. He was that overcome with emotion at, at losing this, this colleague. He's an special person for all of us. You're not having second thoughts, are you, Pep? He's so nice, he's so nice. Is it because of the human being as, as well as the footballer? Yeah, he helped me a lot. That's... It's been the challenge for you. You've had to do it replacing totems of this football club. We cannot cannot replace him. We cannot. Yeah, I I was more emotionally moved by Pep Guardiola's words than Martin Tyler's commentary for the first goal, in which he attempted a a repeat of Aguero, which, um, yeah, it, it kind of fell down because then when Aguero scored again, he was sort of, surprised as if to say oh this wasn't kind of in the script i've already done the i've already done the commentary i can't i can't really do it again um right. yeah although, it was a little bit knowing although he does you know he has in the past three done the, but anyway yes sergio aguero <laughs> with a brace scoring was that his 184th with a second or was that the uh, first the bit? anyway it's a record in the premier league for goals for a single club yes 184 184 really neat as well his, his Man City career began with two goals as a sub and it ended in the same fashion. Again, just throwing forward, the, the word seems to be that he's going to be teaming up with Messi at Barcelona, recreating their sensational partnership for Argentina. Yeah, I, I kind of assumed that the reason he was leaving Manchester City is because they felt that maybe his form, and well, not maybe not his form, but certainly his fitness, uh, and his knees and hamstrings were maybe not quite up to that kind of relentless pursuit of titles. It seems a, if I was Barcelona, wages notwithstanding, I'd rather have Luis Suarez than Sergio Aguero next season, I think. I mean, it's worth pointing out that Messi 
unless I'm mistaken, Messi doesn't currently have a contract to play at Barcelona for next year. So I'd, if I was him, I'd be wanting some kind of guarantee on that before I signed up for the next two or three years. A bureau fax, yes. Okay. <laughs> uh, shout for Edison, the Golden Glove uh, winner, Sasha, and yeah. had a brilliant penalty save on Gilfie Sigurdsson in this game. He Maybe he gets a bit overlooked because everyone's a superstar at Man City, but how good a keeper is Edison? I mean, he's, he's definitely fundamental to the way they play. And, you know, he can also, you know, save a few shots here and there, but aside from passing the ball, I think, um, you know, his stats for the season perhaps have suffered slightly uh, because, you know, they won the league uh, with a few games to spare. But he certainly, uh, I mean, today was a lovely leap um, for the penalty save. And I think, yeah, I think I think he's actual, you know, to, to be honest, until this season, he probably was rightly criticised because he wasn't quite as clean, I think, as, I suppose, when with his technique uh, as some of the other goalkeepers. Uh, but this season, I think there's absolutely no complaints. And I think he's been key to that back line together with um, Ruben Dias uh, being as watertight as they are and uh, best defence in the league. OK. And the best penalty taker in the, in the, in the squad, we're always told as well. Though we Apparently, to yes. See that. Yeah. Uh, and, and on a similar note, Ruben Dias, who last week was announced as the Football Writers Player of the Year, the first defender to win the award since Steve Nichol 32 years ago. Daniel and Michael, what did you make of that decision? Were you outraged or did you quietly applaud it or were you actually not that interested anyway? Um, I was more outraged than quietly applauding it. It wouldn't have got in my top three or four. Who would have uh, been in your top three or four, Michael? uh, Fernandes, De Bruyne, Gundogan and Kane. Okay. He's he's had a good season. No question he's had a good season. He's he's been the best centre-back, but... You won't ever find me voting for a centre-back as player of the year, honestly. I think to an extent there was a hangover or crossover from the fact that Jordan Henderson won it last year and I think Virgil van Dijk was probably the best player in the league. Uh, and I think there's probably an argument that van Dijk kind of made Premier League defending seem sexy again and therefore there was it was likely that a defender might win it this year. Um, I mean, as you say, he's played very well and he's been a difference maker. It's just whether... Yeah, I think the change in Gundogan, I would have vote, maybe voted for him above him. I think what is quite interesting, because there's obviously two major awards. One is the Players Award and one is the Football Writers Award. And uh, I've suggested writing this as an article, and I think the editors think I won't be able to do it without sounding too sneery. But if you look at the if 1990s... If anyone can do that, Michael. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but if you look at the 1990s, the writers tended to go for like the more flair players. So they would vote for like Klinsman and Cantona uh, and Zola. When the players would tend to go for the kind of Ferdinand Shearer, the kind of players who get things done. And it's almost like that's been flipped. Now the players really rate the flair players, Hazard and um, uh, De Bruyne. Did, did, I think De Bruyne won the Players Award last year, did he? Whereas now the, the journalists tend to go for the real, the Cantes, the Diazes, the kind of get things done. Uh, players, which I just think has been an interesting shift, but as as yeah, I'm sounding sneery even here, so I'm not going to no, write no. the article about. It. Is it is it indicative though that w- even you struggle to remember who won it last season? That it isn't something that sticks in there. The only one that I can usually remember is the fact that Scott Parker won. I think the <laughs> yeah the PF with the football writers was it or the PFA? Again, no, that, no, that was that was the football writers. So right. yeah, that was um, that was probably the classic example of them going for someone who gets things done. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. 
head over to MichelobeUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. On Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Smart Speaker and now ad-free on The Athletic, this is The Totally Football Show with James Richardson. It's lovely to see the return of some things that we might have forgotten from football like You'll Never Walk Alone at Anfield, or Gunnasaurus at the Emirates in Arsenal's 2-0 victory over Brighton. Arsenal continuing their incredible record of winning on the final day of the season. Michael, that's comforting for their supporters. That's some momentum for next year. Isn't that right? Yeah, it does seem to be quite an Arsenal thing to have a disappointing campaign and go out on a high. The same way they often went out of Europe by losing the tie in the first leg and then getting a morale-boosting victory in the second leg. So, yeah... On, uh, yeah, on brand for them. Okay. They finish eighth. Their run of 25 consecutive seasons in Europe has come to an end. It did look for a while, as we mentioned in the afternoon, like they might sneak past Spurs into the conference league. But positive things like Pepe's form in, in the last couple of weeks and this Sunday, two goals there in the, in the victory over Brighton. Daniel, did you? I, I didn't actually see too much of this game because of all the other ones. Were you able to form any thoughts on this? Well, I just—I was just going to say on us. It, it, in in, you can almost pick any club and say it's been a baffling season for <laughs> a high percentage of that club, but none more so than Arsenal, who, you know, over the last twenty-four games are second to Manchester City in the table. Now I know that that's effectively meaningless because we played thirty-eight games, and that's generally how these things are worked out, but. <laughs> It's not that they're second in that table that's baffling to me. It's that they're second having frustrated me every time I watch them and thrown away so many silly points and dropped, you know, just sort of lurched backwards after lurching forwards. And I know Arteta will point to that and say, that's a gradual improvement. We are better than Mm. last season. But it's just so hard to know where they're at. I find that to be the most troubling stat I've possibly ever encountered. You, you, You tweeted it last week and we... We were dumbfounded by it on Thursday. Can anyone offer any explanation to that apparent kind of dichotomy between them being second and two-thirds worth of the 
the the the league's performances and and the fact that they're actually not very good most of the times you watch them. No, I mean they started the season. The obvious thing to say is that they started the season incredibly badly. So them ah. being second for a while has not really made a difference in terms of top four race. Uh, and they also carried on going to the end of the season, which clubs like Manchester United, who are pretty close to them in that table, haven't done. But right. no, it's still. It's, I agree, it's still baffling. If you look at Arsenal, I think they've improved by several points on last season. Um, whenever, like when I saw them say play against Chelsea, I don't think they've done anything. You know when. Um, you know, Arteta sometimes talks about high pressing. There was sporadic bits of pressing when one of them paid off. I didn't really see much structure to the game. One thing I would say is I think, you know, he may he has made some, you know, some, some slightly calamitous errors, um, like, for example, the one against Everton. But Leno is an absolutely amazing goalkeeper, I think. Um, if just the, technically and the way he, some, I think, on occasion keeps them in games and, you know, he does stuff that, you know, Kepa can only dream of, for example. And I think perhaps some, th- some of this is due down to the fact that they actually do have a very good goalkeeper there who has maybe saved them ba- their bacon on more than a number of occasions despite, you know, the odd high-profile ridiculous error. Okay. Well, their eighth-place finish was enough for them to have such wild celebrations after the victory over Brighton that uh, Gabriel lost his tooth. Uh, Arsenal staff were out helping him look for it on the Emirates turf post-game. Um, was this Sashi a prosthetic? Too? prosthetic I don't know tooth? why he was looking for it. Maybe it, why maybe would he it was play, a, a But why would he tooth. play with it? Oh, okay. Maybe he wanted uh. to put it under his pillow or something. For uh, <laughs> I, I really don't know. I was also surprised that Arsenal had any staff because I thought that was... You know. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway. Okay, Well, so that was Arsenal. Newcastle. They finished 12th. 2-0 victory for them mm. away at Fulham. Joe Willock scoring again, equaling, I know you've read this, listener, but equaling Alan Shearer's club record of scoring in seven successive games for Newcastle. And he'll be back at Arsenal, says Arteta, next season. Is that one of those strange streaks that a player goes on or is he genuinely a very, very special young talent? I don't really know what he's all about other than this, other than getting in the box and scoring goals, which he's done very well over the last seven games. I'm not sure he'll be sustaining that over the course of the season, personally. I'm not sure what else he offers. He's he's decent technically. He's neat and tidy. I don't see him as overwhelmingly creative, but he's certainly improved his prospects of of getting a chance from the start of next season at Arsenal with this run. Um, And maybe if he is to move on, He'll be going to a better club than he probably would have done had Arsenal sold him in January. So I'm I'm waiting to be convinced by him, I must say. But yeah, he's he's had a great loan spell. Absolutely, what what an incredible run, what an incredible run of goal scoring. Leeds finished ninth in their first season back in the Premier League, which is pretty amazing. In fact, their points tally of 59 is the most by a newly promoted club in the Premier League since Ipswich back at the turn of the millennium. 20 years ago. I mean, that is really impressive when you consider the fact that we've had a, a couple of really good promoted sides in the last couple of years. I mean, Wolves, was that two seasons ago? Yeah, two seasons ago now. Sheffield United, obviously last season until they kind of hit the wall about mm. 33 games in and then very much continued that slump into, well, pretty much all of this season until the equivalent point of the year when they got relegated and then they started playing well. But yeah, for them to exceed those two sides is is absolutely fant- uh, fantastic. And a lot of us, you know, suspected that they would tail off um, as the season continued, which obviously very much has not been the case. And actually, they've they finished it in great form with four wins. So, yeah, they've been a joy to watch and I think probably got about 10 more points than most of us were expecting. Yeah, I hope there's not a super cut out there of all the times we talked about fatigue that was going to kick in <laughs> and 
Bielsa burnout and that. Yeah, the other thing to say on on Leeds is their eighth most used players with the most minutes this season all were in the Championship squad last season. So they did spend money on on Rodrigo and Diego Llorente, but they haven't played as much. Sheffield United did exactly the same last season, but it just feels like with Leeds, probably because of the size of the club, but also because it sounds like Bielsa is is staying, that them maybe even more than Wolves have got that potential to kind of kick on because it feels with Bielsa, it feels kind of quite organic. It doesn't feel like they Sheffield United maybe rode their luck a little bit and kind of narrow wins became narrow defeats. Wolves clearly had ties, you know, in terms of recruitment policy. But with Leeds it still feels like there's a huge amount of potential there because they they hadn't changed the team from the championship and yet, as we say, they've got that points total, which is is astonishing really. And if you look at players like like Bamford, you know when they came up, people were like, "Ooh, Bamford hasn't scored in the Premier League before." Look at him; uh, he's been he's been an excellent forward for them. One, one, one thing I would ask: What's the squad of their age? I mean, how much longer can they keep this up for? Um, I'm slightly obsessed with aging squads, but they uh, they still have a couple of years in them. This team, yeah, Phillips isn't that old. Hmm. Rafinha's not that old. Bamford's not that old. I think the only one that's I think Dallas is getting on a little bit, and obviously they've lost. They're losing Berardi and Hernandez. The big issue is is massive issue is the squad depth because there's no way that I know we said that this season, but they're going to have to add to that squad over the summer. Melier as well, Sash. I think yeah, he's, been, he's young. Yeah, I, yeah. I think he's been probably top three goalkeepers in the Premier League this season. I think he's been phenomenal. They, they haven't got anyone who's started more than three games who is over thirty. Um, okay, so they haven't got anyone who's definitely not going to be around uh, for next season or, or the year after. And as Danny said, I mean, um, Hernandez only started three games and is over 30 and is moving on. Uh, Alioski's 29 and is moving on. So it seems to be happening quite organically there. Uh, yeah, regeneration, slight regeneration. Are they going to keep Harrison? Is, is there any chance City might want Harrison back? I, I'd be mm. surprised. I, I think he's been really good. I, I haven't seen him be so good that City would want him back. So... I can imagine the, the majority of that side being there for next year. Sheffield United won't be there next year. They'll be there in the Championship. They finished, though, with a flourish of 1-0 victory over Burnley. Rotten news for Burnley's Nick Pope, who's going to miss the Euros because he has to have knee surgery. Gareth Southgate will be announcing the squad on Tuesday. Daniel, I'm not sure if you want to wait and see who comes in his place, but that's um, very sad news for England, but above all for Nick Pope, no? Yeah, I mean, it'll be Sam Johnston, I think, who come in. Who, it will. Uh, slightly ironically made a horrible mm. mistake at Ellen Road um, from a free kick from Calvin Phillips uh, on Sunday. But yeah, he's he's been really good. Uh, he's better than the only other options are uh, Aaron Ramsdale, who won Sheffield United's Player of the Year award, which is not saying a huge amount because I don't think he's been that good this season. Um, so yeah, I think Johnston will walk in. And it is very much that number two slash number three spot there was all that talk of Jordan Pickford not being number one but he I don't think there's been a point of this season where he's been a more certain to be number one at the at the Euros well much more talk about the Euros to come as we count down to June the 11th for now though one or two more of the things that are ending on this final day of the season Nuno ending his time at Wolves by mutual consent it says in the official statement 199 games in charge of Wolverhampton Wanderers. This one ended in a 2-1 defeat to Man United. It started with him getting a, a hero's welcome, really, from a, a throng of Wolves supporters. There's talk 
that Paolo Fonseca, late of Roma, could be of interest because he's Portuguese. Uh, <laughs> a big box to tick. Zafford5 says, I'm very worried as a Wolves fan about Nuno going. Could Roma's loss, Paolo Fonseca, uh, be Wolves' gain? How might Fonseca fare moving from the culture vacuum of Rome to sophisticated Wolverhampton? Important questions, <laughs> Zafford5. It, it, it's... Without being within the Wolves' structure, this feels like maybe it, they did need to make a change. Is that fair? Um, I think the time was right. I think it's been a difficult campaign for them, particularly because of the loss of Jimenez and it meant that Fabio Silva was playing up front a lot and it clearly was just not bought for this season. I, I felt quite sorry for him at times because I think sometimes playing too much at that age can, can harm his development. Yeah, I think it probably was time to move on. I, it's slightly difficult, really, to assess how good Nuno's been. I understand why he got such a great ovation, because he took Wolves up, he took them into Europe and had a great run in Europe. But, I mean, they, they've they had a, one of the best central midfield duos in the league. Uh, they've had a very good goalkeeper, and they've had, generally, a great front three. I mean, we now know how good Diego Jota is. Jimenez is obviously a fantastic player. Traore quote, on his day, a fantastic player. So what he's done well, really, is organise the defence and organise the defence in quite a specific structure with Conor Cody playing almost as a sweeper. But when he tried to move away from that, go to back four, I was less convinced. So it'll be interesting to see where he gets to, you know, the next job. I mean, a lot of people thought maybe his departure was linked to the Spurs job. But I gather that is not the case. Um, but I can't quite imagine what sort of club he will end up at next. But... I expect probably somewhere with a, a George Mendes connection. Yeah, I guess one of the Portuguese big three or uh, La Liga. There, there was talk of him being homesick, wasn't there, after you know having kind of been away from home for a long time after COVID. So he might take a bit of time off, but it wouldn't. You'd assume that next season one of those big Portuguese three will sack a manager as they are often prone to do, and he kind of feels like a good fit for that, I guess. Yeah, but I mean, it, it was with. Valencia and Porto before, wasn't he? And mm. didn't didn't really no, pull up many trees. No. no, so I just I think maybe there was a it was a case of it was a right right person for the right job. But I think his next movement could be quite difficult, and indeed for Wolves as well, because like I say, they were so good in a very particular way of playing. I think there was a sense they needed to move away from that. Nuno wasn't able to do it, but the next manager might be on onus on him not just to change the system, but also to play a slightly more attacking style of football. So I think that is quite a difficult job. We might look back at these few years and think, well, that really was, you know, a great period in, in Wolves history. Indeed. As for Man United, with this victory, they become only the third club in English top division history to go through an entire league campaign unbeaten away from home. Preston was one of the two, 88-89, and of course Arsenal, who did it twice, in 0102 and 03-04. I don't think this year counts, James. Does it not? Oh, because it's no fans, yeah. Well, if you look at the whole league, it's the first mm. time in any uh, of the top four divisions in over 120 years of Football League history where mm. there's been more away wins than home wins. So right. there's, there's a very big asterisk there for me. OK, it, it, almost this year it should be getting all your wins at home. That would be the achievement. <laughs> United, though, impressively doing it with the reserves. Uh, ten changes from the previous game against Fulham. Axel Twanzebe, the only player to keep his place. It's nice to see Juan Mata, who's 
is still at Man United. This is possibly his farewell, but he got to run out and scored a penalty. And also kind of at the other end of the age spectrum, uh, Anthony Elanga, making only his second Premier League appearance, but scoring with his first shot on target in the competition. Do you know much about Anthony Elanga? Yeah, his dad was quite a famous player back in the day for Malmo, I think I'm right oh. saying. Um, yeah, I gather he's quite promising. Unusual to see a wide player score a headed goal. I always mm, but, uh, but it was a it was a vigorous header, wasn't it? Yeah, but I mean, obviously Manchester United have had the luxury really of playing their reserves for a couple of the last few games, and just little things like that can be a real boost. You know, the next time he comes into the side, maybe he'll feel at home, feels that he scored for a mini goal. So yeah, it's been despite poor results, I think it's been quite a positive end of the campaign for Manchester United. Also because. It, it, they do need better players in some positions, don't they, Manchester United? And I think the the slight poor results maybe will just temper expectations, won't they? And maybe right. remind people in charge that they, they probably do need a, at least one more good attacking player. And right. I still think a really good defensive midfield player as well. If you finish second and get to a European final in a poor season, then, then you know, how far could you go? I guess that's the question. Uh, Wednesday, it's an invitation to Gdansk for the Europa League finale. Uh, well, they'll be taking on Villarreal, of course, the third Spanish side they've faced, having previously dispatched Real Sociedad and Granada. You looking forward to this? Yeah, I think they they will be heavy favourites and should be heavy favourites. But if it, if as it, it seems Harry Maguire's out, his absence, albeit as Michael says, with a number of reserve players ahead of him, um, seems to have made a pretty big difference and. Yeah, if they start slowly uh, and concede first, I know this sounds a ludicrous thing to say about Manchester United because that's exactly what they've been good at all season is coming back from that. But Maguire clearly offers them that kind of leadership and calmness that it will be interesting to know who provides that in his absence if if things don't go right. Having said that, I think they'll win 2-0. OK, well, their opponents, Villarreal, were beaten this weekend 2-1 by Real Madrid on the final day of the Liga season which means the yellow submarines they're known are currently headed to the dread uh, Europa Conference. Unless they can win this game, what are their prospects of doing that? Well, how about we bring in Alvaro Romeo? Alvaro, thanks for joining us. Hello, James. Hello to you. All right, so Wednesday's Europa League final in Gdansk. How big an achievement would it be if Villarreal were to upset Man United? It would be massive for them. It would be very big for Spanish football too. I think that uh, we all know that Villarreal is a small municipality, a small uh, a small city uh, in the east of Spain. And uh, that club, uh, they've been in the top flight uh, usually for the last 23, 24 years. But they never won a big trophy. So this is massive. Probably their best achievement ever in their history was coming second in La Liga in 2008. But this is an incomparable thing. I mean, they've done uh, such a good job in the Europa League this season and they just have to break the the last door, which is uh, beating Manchester United in the last game. And it won't be easy because uh, on the basis of what we have seen, Manchester United has a certain ease against the Spanish clubs uh, this year. Well, got past Real Sociedad, of course, got past Granada as mm. well. Villarreal, so far, as you mentioned, away from being a big European side, they don't have hundreds of millions in debt. They don't have angry fans. What do they have that could enable them to, to upset United? 
Well, they've got a manager who knows uh, what winning Europa League is because Unai Emery has done it three times. Uh, they've got um, a number of players uh, who are very capable of uh, inflicting pain and uh, definitely uh, a bad time to Manchester United. The likes of Gerard Moreno, the best Spanish striker this season. Uh, Danny Parejo, an excellent midfielder. I think that the, the defenders, uh, Pau Torres and um, Raul Albiol, uh, the Pau Torres has reached the needed maturity, even though he is very young. And uh, Raul Albiol is uh, very experienced and yet uh, still has the legs to play football at the top level. So I think that, yes, uh, this is a team that will try probably to slow the game down. They know that if Manchester United makes them run, if Manchester United uh, has the chance to counter-attack, uh, probably Villarreal is dead. So in the same way that they did it against Real Madrid uh, on Saturday, or in the same way that they did it against Arsenal in the Europa League semi-final, Villarreal will try to keep long possession, slow the game down, and make sure that they are clinical enough whenever they have a chance. Okay. In Spain, is this being painted as a cuento de hadas, like a, a fairy tale? Hmm. Yeah, very much so. I think that, uh, of course, of course, we have had a title race until uh, the last day. So maybe the Villarreal story hasn't hit the headlines as much as uh, it should have. But yes, it is considered like that. This is the dream of uh, Fernando Ronch, uh, the president of Villarreal, who, by the way, may not be in Poland in Dansk because he tested positive for COVID last week. But yeah, it is considered to be a fairy tale because this is a team that uh, even in their most successful era in their history, uh, they have gone down to the second division a couple of times. They have come back stronger. And now, you know, after a season in which uh, they seem at some point that they were able to qualify for the Europa League, they haven't. They qualified for the Conference League. Now they, they can win a major title. The Europa League is a major title for them. And they can qualify for the Champions League as well, which right. uh, will help a lot uh, keeping the likes of Gerard Moreno, Samu Chukwese, who we don't know whether uh, he will play the final or not because he's got an ongoing injury, or uh, some other key players like Pau Torres. If mm. they qualify for the Champions League, maybe those young, good players, they will think about staying an extra season at Villarreal. Alvaro, is this a fixture that Unai Emery is going to be feeling or taking particularly personally because it's against an English side and maybe didn't have the best of times in the Premier League? And also, what kind of approach is he going to take with those rotating goalkeepers of his? Well, uh, number uh, to, the, to your first question, I would say that this is going to be a special for Unai Emery because I think that he still feels that here in England uh, he didn't... Uh, reached the levels he was expecting from himself, uh, from his arsenal. So yes, to the, same, to the first question and to the second one. Well, uh, Unai Emery didn't uh, confirm 100% that he was going to play with Jeronimo Rulli, the second goalkeeper, in the final, but he said literally that uh, he wants to give continuity to the work done this season, meaning that uh, probably there is a likelihood, big one, that the second choice goalkeeper, Jeronimo Rulli, will get a chance in the final too. And let's don't forget that uh, this goalkeeper has been quite sloppy this season in comparison to Sergio Asenjo, who has been fantastic. So, you know, I think that if Villarreal plays with Jeronimo Rulli, uh, probably their uh, chances of winning the final will dim down a little bit. I see. Alvaro, thank you so much. We'll speak to you on Tuesday then with a full roundup of the final day in La Liga. Looking forward to it. Alvaro Romeo uh, there, who will be joining us again on Tuesday for the Italian Football Show European Edition, which will, of course, be discussing the end of season in La Liga. Michael, though, th- this game on Wednesday. Yeah, it'd be nice if Villarreal won it. I mean, Manchester United obviously have, have won it, what, four years ago, I think it was. They don't mm. actually need this in terms of 
Champions League qualification because they've got that in the bag. And Villarreal, as Alvaro says, wonderful story. I've had real heartbreak in a couple of uh, European campaigns before. Everyone remembers the Raquel May penalty miss against Arsenal, but they absolutely bombed in, I think it was 2011, no, 2010 it must have been. No, 2011 actually against Porto, where they got absolutely smashed 5-1 in the first leg with a really good team. Uh, I, I don't think this is a vintage Villarreal side. They don't play as good football as they have in previous years. But yeah, I mean, it, for anyone who's ever been to the town, it's just hilariously small to be hosting uh, potentially a UEFA Cup winning side. Mm. So have you be been nice to the Thoramaka then? Yeah, it's, it's, it's amazing. I mean, the town is just, you can walk the length of it in about 20 minutes and it, it almost feels like a small village. And when you turn the corner and you see this, fairly substantial stadium just out of the corner of your eyes it's i mean yeah maybe the most memorable stadium that i've been to in europe it's a wonderful place oh really nice one about the size of sutton probably (laughs) yeah that's (laughs) probably where my comparisons with the two towns would end but yes okay all right well that's coming up on wednesday but cup finals and playoffs aside the season is done so in a second or two we'll sign off on today's show by trying to remember some of the standout moments of the last eight months. What do you think about that? First of all, though, let's buy ourselves some time by getting some odds from Carl Monaghan from Paddy Power. Hello, James. Hello, listeners. Well, we're going to have a look at the Europa League final of the Champions League final this week. And Manchester United, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer and his side finishing second in the Premier League, unbeaten on their travels away from home. A tough nut to crack, you could say. Uh, United are 4-5, to five, the odds-on favourites for that Europa League final as Ole desperately tries to lift his uh, first piece of silver at the club. Now, the Yellow Submarine, they beat Sevilla, the Europa League serial winners, quite recently 4-0. So they're no pushovers at all, and they're a massive price at 15-4, to four, finished 7th in the league of the season. Bruno Fernandes, arguably United's player of the season, he's 4-1 to one for the first goal scorer. He'll be very popular in the betting as he takes the pens. And how about Cavani? Looks the part and has now backed it up recently with loads of goals. He's 7-2 to two in the first goal market. Now we move on to the All-English Affair in the Champions League final, folks. And Pep Guardiola so close. He can smell old big ears as his Manchester City project has finally landed him in the Champions League final. Chelsea have beaten them twice recently in both the FA Cup and the Premier League. But Pep Guardiola did point to the fact that Chelsea didn't necessarily beat Man City's best first eleven so far this season. So that's interesting. The prices are Man City 9 to 10, the draw is 23 to 10, Chelsea are 130. Now Chelsea have already tasted cup final defeat this year. Will it be double cup final gloom for Thomas Tuchel after a brilliant first season? We'll have to wait and see. But uh, Manchester City at 9 to 10, the odds on favourites, the Mank double will be very popular this week and be sure that it's around a 5-2 to two mark. It'll have more hits than the Gallagher brothers put together. You can find out these odds and more at paddybower.com or the Paddy Power app. Prices are accurate at the time of recording. It's over 18s only. Terms and conditions apply and when the fun stops, stop. Now, I mentioned that Alvaro will be joining us for the Totally Football Show European Edition. That's on Tuesday. Also on Tuesday, Totally Scottish Football Show will be signing off for the season, discussing the remarkable St Johnston double League Cup, Scottish Cup. Totally Football League show is out on Monday. It's already out, probably. Uh, They'll be looking forward to the Championship playoff final, Swansea-Brentford. 
and I'm sure they will be hailing a team that they'll be featuring next year, Sutton United, who got promoted to the Football League for the first time in their 123 years of existence. A big question about this was whether they could keep their artificial pitch, but no, Michael's shaking his head. They can't. No, they can't, so they're probably going to have to ground share for the start of next season somewhere local. Right. Yeah, okay. and it's interesting in terms of long-term income because that does get a couple of hundred K in for them, so it's hugely important. But I think also what's very impressive about Sutton going up is they're not full-time and they've finished ahead of a bunch of former league sides and there's a hardly pull behind them. Torquay made a very good late run pushing them uh, towards the end of the season. So I think it's like the, this achievement is impressive and I think it almost feels like in a way they managed to build on all that. Uh, on that, You remember the tie they had against uh, Arsenal after building Leeds a few years ago in the FA Cup and they kind of you know, kept, kept building on that. Pygate. Pi, yes, I think that's really unfortunate because we now remember yeah. it as Pygate, but, you know, there was so, there was so much that club did, did well. And mm. I think it's, it's good to see because uh, I think the majority of it is run by volunteers as well. It's, like, it's a proper non-league team going up into the Football League, which I think has become something of a rarity recently. Absolutely. Well done to everyone down at Gander Green Lane. Anyway, I'd mentioned that we're going to try and delve back into our memories of the last eight months. So good luck with that, everybody, as I ask you to pick out your favourite bits. Which bits can you actually remember, Daniel? Can you remember Project Big Picture, for example? Yes, <laughs> I remember Project Yes, I can. What about, you remember that weird spell when, when, when they were charging people to watch, like, extra, you could have PPV Premier League games. That was October. Did you remember that? Yeah, it feels, feels like about yeah. three years ago, but yes, I can mm. remember it. Okay, good. For some of those PPV uh, games, wasn't uh, the subscription like less than a thousand or something like that? Like Burnley, Burnley versus Brighton or someone. I've I've been on a show that had a love. <laughs> I genuinely have. I've done a show that <laughs> when BT Sport and I'm sure they won't mind me mentioning this. When they first launched, they did a service where they much like um, what was it called? Football First, the one that Sky used to do until recently, where they give you like a half hour highlights or whatever. And they offered that. This is about 2006 or something. But they very cleverly didn't advertise it to anyone. So we would get single figure audiences for some of these late night kind of digital repurposings of, of, of football matches. And uh, the, I think the biggest audience we ever had was in four figures. But when I expressed excitement of that, the guy in charge, who at this point was explaining to me why they weren't going to be making this show anymore and <laughs> handing me a small envelope, um, he said, yeah, but we, the virtual fireplace on the other channel actually was getting a bigger audience. <laughs> so, um, Still well presented. Yeah. <laughs> the fireplace yeah <laughs> um so so uh, anyway but back to this season what what has gone daniel sorry you were going to say some of the things that have stood out for you the best game i think by a mile was was aston villa liverpool early in the season and then it, it kind of feels like we had this hugely long period where i can't remember very much until eric lamella's goal in the north london derby ah. i think i think that was amazing uh, and then obviously Allison's goal the other day, but ah, um, yeah. I know Michael tweeted this the other day and completely agree. It does feel like a season that has very few of those memories, other than the Allison goal, that I'm going to remember in five years' time, or more importantly, be able to remember which season it was in in five years' time. <laughs> right, right. So uh, Christina Pagnotu uh, asked, "What does the pod think the goal of the season was?" Because at various times throughout. 
these various shows we've been doing, we've been saying, oh, well, that was cool of the season. Certainly Lamella was one that... Uh, yeah, that I think was mine. Thought, oh, yeah. It was completely different. But then that, that moment when, when Alisson went up and scored in that fashion, that was just... I know recency bias, but that, that felt very much like the, the moment of the season. What would you call the goal of the season? Sash, Michael? I think it depends how I look at it. I think in terms of the story and you know what it resulted in, I can't really look past Alisson uh, because mm. it was just such a... It's just such an amazing thing to happen. Um, and I think what's important as well, Liverpool, it was crucial of keeping Liverpool in the race and actually got something tangible at the end of it. Because sometimes if you know, these goals might get forgotten if you didn't actually achieve what you set out to achieve at the end. I mean, in terms of actual skill, um, I mean, I didn't go to many games this season. Uh, so, I mean, I remember the season I was doing lots of cycling around London. But I remember my first game, Fulham Liverpool, cycling up towards Craven Cottage and seeing Cottage with Fulham FC, Fulham Football Club on it. Like, I got, I got a bit teary. Uh, but in terms of goals... Um, there is that uh, Firmino goal against Palace, coast to coast, and uh, there is that another coast to coast goal, the um, Salah goal at uh, West Ham, which, yeah, oh, it was Gone just for Liverpool one, Sash. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I, it's, it's, it, it is what I tended to remember, and it's but those two were amazing goals, and especially I think the Salah one because you know it's a massive stadium, and you can see like if you're watching it live, you can just see the possibility and you think, no, they're not going to do that. And there's two huge diagonals resulting in a brilliant right. piece of control with one and putting away with the other. Like for me, I was like, what? Like, pfft, might as well just walk out and not watch football for the rest of the season. I, I thought it was actually... Wait, if you, you actually didn't know. You, you mostly were out putting the bins out because you got nervous or like today, for example, <laughs> having a bit of a wander around. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's... Uh, yeah, the thing in the stadium, you can't really walk out. Well, you can't, but I, do, oh, I don't. That's true. Uh, but I found, I found it's, it's hard, you know, to watch games at home on your own uh, because I think one's nervous energy is best when it's shared rather than, you know, when it's built up just on your own. And it's, it's, I found it quite difficult. That's a very interesting point, Atisha. I don't, I've not seen that discussed much. You know, everybody misses going to games and that and you're know, seeing your friends or whatever. But the fact that it is such a painful experience to follow your team, when they're losing, it's miserable. When they're winning, you're just waiting for them to, something to go wrong, etc. And if you don't have the opportunity to kind of share in that with 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 other people then um well yeah you're, you're putting the bins out really <laughs> anyway mm. michael sorry what's your moment of the season stroke goal of the season My, first of all i think the game of the season everyone forgets how good this game was was a couple of weeks before christmas when liverpool beat spurs 2-1 and at the time that was first against second in the league much as it sounds weird to say um, and Firmino scored a last-minute headed winner. And that was also one of the very few games where there were fans in. There was 2,000 fans right. in. And that, it's been great having fans in the last couple of weeks, but it's also given me a sense of, blindly, we've had a whole season without fans. This has been really dreadful. Whereas before Christmas, it felt like that was going to be, you know, it was going to ramp up and we were gradually going to have right. fans back. So at that time, I was feeling more about more optimistic about football than I had been at any point throughout the season I think my goal of the season would probably be the Lanzini one uh, the equaliser White Hart Lane because it was obviously coming back from from 3-0 down it was just an incredible hit um, and it felt like there was real drama in that but uh, yeah it's it, it hasn't been a vintage season to be a, a fan for obvious reasons and it's funny you know I, I think we've had this discussion before about like remembering where you watch games and stuff and you always peg it to like events in your life but Having been mocked by friends and family for many years for being able to recall events in my life by virtue of what the football games right. were, now because there haven't really been any events in anyone's life, 
Right. I now can't remember any of the football games either. So I've realised that the two things are pegged to each other in a, in this, a funny kind of way. This was your party trick that you, you recently displayed, your ability to say where you were when you watched any yeah. game. No? I mean, I can, now... tell, I can tell you where I was for every day of the last year and a bit right, because it was yeah, in exactly sure. the same place. So it's not very exciting anymore. That's true. Yeah, OK. Anything else? From this season, I'm, I'm sure we'll get another chance to come back with some more gold memories or awards or whatever before the Euros get going. But for now, anything else you'd like to salute? Yes, can I salute uh, the conference? Um, okay. are, are we moving on from England? Uh, can I salute the Europa Conference? Because I know it's, uh, you know, no one wants to play in it apparently, but one team definitely does. Union Berlin right. uh, beat RB Leipzig uh, with a Max Cruiser head in the 92nd minute of the last game of the season to qualify for only the second ever. Uh, European campaign and I think they're certainly all over that there was, there was I think 2000 fans to see them as well and given you know the path at which they came 15 years ago they were in the fourth tier and they um, they are a team from southeast Berlin um, they are very much you know in their community they're very much the outsiders in East Germany and I think post-unification they feel a bit different as well and um, I think uh, I think it's great uh, to see them do this off the back of some good defending excellent goalkeeping and Max Cruz, a bit of a maverick, who apparently could have signed for Liverpool a couple of years ago, but then Origi scored those goals in the Champions League. So I think good luck to them, and I think they will thoroughly enjoy the uh, Europa League conference. Right, and who would have thought it would be them of the Berlin side rather than Moneybags Hertha Berlin, who announced Champions League within five seasons and all that, who would be getting a taste of some form of European competition. Hertha, by contrast, spent the season flirting uh, with the, 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 the drop to Bundesliga Zwei, as we like to call it. But anyway, much more of that kind of thing, Sasha, of course, with Raphael Honigstein in Tuesday's big season finale of the Euro Totally Football Show. But for now, that's where we'll put a full stop to this one. Many thanks to Daniel, Michael and Sasha for spending Sunday evening are with us here on Totally and producer Charlie too. Listener, have a great time until we speak to you again next. As I mentioned, we'll be along with the Euro show on Tuesday and then on Thursday, as per normal, reviewing the action in Gdansk between Man United and Villarreal and looking forward to Chelsea Man City. For now, though, from all of us here, it's goodbye. You've been listening to The Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Keep up to date with everything totally at thetotallyfootballshow.com and follow us at The Totally Show on Twitter and Insta. Check out all of the Athletics Football podcasts on Apple, Spotify and all the usual places or listen ad-free on the Athletic app. The Totally Football Show is a Muddy Knees Media production and sponsored by Paddy Power. The Athletic.